0: In this episode of The Fintech Files, your host George Alifris goes on a deep dive into the buy-now-pay-later industry with Jason Mikula. Jason is the publisher of the Fintech Business Weekly newsletter and an advisor to fintech startups. Previously, he spent over a decade building and scaling consumer finance businesses in companies such as Innova, Lenda, and Goldman Sachs.
1: Jason, welcome. Great to have you
0: here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I've done a very quick intro, but can you give us a quick background on how this all emerged into what you're doing now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Although I now live in in the Netherlands, the bulk of my career was in the United States, and I spent over a decade working in consumer lending businesses primarily and held a number of roles primarily around marketing, customer acquisition, and product management in companies that lent money to people on the internet. And it may be hard to imagine now, but there was a time not that long ago when the idea of writing a loan, originating a loan purely online, was a novel concept that. You know, may cutting edge startups would engage in, but establishment banks wouldn't obviously now in 2022, looking back if your product is, is not online, does it even exist? So I've really seen a really dramatic evolution during my time in the space of the idea of having online distribution of credit as a relatively novel concept to to almost table stakes. And it's that career took me from Chicago to San Francisco to New York and eventually to London. And when I ended my last role in London, which was at a private student lending startup, I ended up moving to the Netherlands for, for family reasons. And once I got here, I took some time off and considered what direction I wanted to go with my career and i guess i wouldn't even say pivoted but iterated a bit and instead of having like a hands-on operating role which is you know what i had done for 10 12 years or so moved into more of a consulting and advising space working primarily with early stage startups, but I've worked with establishment high street banks in the UK and banks in the US as well. And as part of that and was influenced by the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns and the general bad winter weather here in the Netherlands, I started writing my newsletter as a hobby. And that also became a business in and of itself, as well as serving as a great way to meet and interact with other people in the fintech banking, and I guess now crypto industries.
1: We've spoken about lending and one hot topic is BNPL buy now pay later with valuations of companies that were quite spectacular, which have fallen dramatically today. I look at affirm. It was at $170, not so long ago, and now $35, but can we look back So can you tell us how new form of lending has emerged.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's nothing inherently new about the idea of buy now, pay later, right? The idea of being able to make a purchase with financing at the point of sale is something that has been around for decades, if not for centuries. So the novel innovation. That really led to the explosion of these companies like Klarna and zip and a firm was the, the UX, the user experience. And so the unlock as I like to put it was having that financing be available at the right place. At the right time and importantly with the right underwriting or in a way where you know the large majority of people are able to actually access that credit and what i mean when i say right place right time is if you are a consumer and you're shopping at asos or adidas or scotch and soda when you get to that checkout having the option to make one payment today and three subsequent payments presented at the time you're executing that transaction and in a way where the lift is minimal for a lot of these BNPL, the incremental number of fields you need to fill out is zero. So it's basically the same as checking out with an existing merchant, except you can split that payment over time. And most importantly, perhaps the cost, at least at the surface to the consumer, it's free, it's 0%, you know, no interest, no fees, if you pay on time, etc. The couple of pieces that really allowed this to blow up in scale in e-commerce were placement at checkout, simple UX, and the appearance of being no cost or being free.
1: And there's also this narrative, and I think those companies are particularly good at narrative, that it has replaced probably credit card payments and is an improvement on the credit card payments.
0: (laughs) I think you're right that it is a narrative and, and like all narratives, there are you know some elements of truth and perhaps some elements of exaggeration and what i mean when i say that is you know, okay buy now pay later is whether it's the split pay formulation which is a relatively short time frame for small ticket sizes or the longer term installment loan formulation which is where a firm got its start these are close-ended credit products, meaning at the time a consumer is choosing uh, to use it at check, they can see in theory the total cost of credit. If I'm buying a Peloton and I'm choosing 24 month financing with such and such interest rate, I know when I click buy what my total uh, repayment is going to be. Whereas with credit cards, with revolving forms of credit, you don't really know that when you make a purchase, because it depends on what your payment behavior is against that balance over time. And so in that sense, BMPL companies have said, this is a quote unquote, safer product because it's close-ended and it's more transparent because customers have this awareness of the total cost of financing upfront. And I think there's elements of truth in, in both of those. Uh, on the flip side, particularly in the United States, many of the purveyors of BNPL have positioned that their products as not being credit or as not being debt. And there are specific regulatory reasons why they have pursued this strategy, uh, namely wanting to avoid the complexity of complying with U.S. regulations like ECOA, which is the Equal Credit Opportunity Act designed to prevent discrimination in credit products, FICRA, which is the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and a number of other consumer protections that go along with a product that is regulated as uh, credit. Uh, TILA, for example, Truth in Lending Act, which requires certain disclosures. And there's a number of reasons why they would want to avoid being classified as credit obviously complying with those regulations is potentially complex and thus expensive but there's also risk to one of those key components i mentioned which is the ux if you have to start collecting consumer opt-ins consumer disclosures if you have to start underwriting split pay buy now pay leader, using credit bureau data furnishing that information back to credit bureaus It has the potential to dramatically change the user experience of using a buy now pay later service in a way that could potentially reduce the conversion rate and thus reduce the likelihood that consumers choose to use these services.
1: Merchants like it, love it. It seems to have a very positive impact on their sales. And they love it so much that very often merchants have uh, many BNPL options at once. How much of an impact it has on the merchant side and why they've adopted it so quickly
0: on the merchant side the again the narrative and and frankly it's been hard to find independent statistics to corroborate this is offering buy now pay later to their customers increases the average order value which means somebody is buying more than they otherwise would without the option to to split those payments and it's increasing the uh, conversion rate or decreasing the likelihood that somebody abandons his or her shopping cart. Thinking critically about the first component from the consumer perspective, you're basically you're inducing people to buy more stuff than they would because they're able to spread that payment over time. It's both logical, but you can also see a potential consumer protection argument in that by reducing the friction or reducing the pain of payment, which is not to be fair, not that different than credit cards. People are going to spend more than they otherwise would. And, And you can think of it actually as akin to Uber, how Uber implements payments in the sense that once you've stored your car, you just call up your Uber, get in, get out and the payment processes, and you don't really have to think about it. It doesn't hurt because you don't realize, oh man, I just spent a hundred euros to go to the airport. So in a similar way, BNPL helps reduce that friction and reduce that pain of payment, which for the merchants is a good thing because it it does tend, if you believe uh, the buy now, pay later company analysis to boost the average order value, boost the cart size and reduce the likelihood that somebody gets to that checkout screen and says, oh man, I can't afford to spend $200 at adidas like i'm just gonna abandon this card they're like oh but i can afford to pay a quarter of that today and come back and and make the rest of the payments later so that is the narrative around why merchants uh have adopted this or love it i haven't Seen a ton of independent analysis that validates that value proposition for the merchant. If I were running a large e-commerce company, what would I want to do to validate that? I would want to run a type of A/B test where you know 50% of users on the site have the option for BNP, 50% don't, and then compare the performance of those two segments to understand is the the fee I'm paying to the buy now pay later provider worth the increase in conversion rate and the increase in average order value for me specifically, rather than relying on studies and statistics provided by the BNPL companies, which of course have a vested interest. Now the fee that the merchants are paying historically has been rather high. So when this first started as a phenomenon, the numbers I've read were something like as high as six to 8% plus maybe 30 or 50 cents per transaction which compared to a traditional card payment in the u.s uh, a traditional card payment might be two to three percent here in europe a debit card payment is capped at 20 bips here in the netherlands Uh, A Maestro card payment, I believe, is a flat two cents per transaction. And Ideal, which is a account-to-account-based payment, uh, is a very low cost of transaction. So to accept Buy Now, Pay Later, particularly in in Europe, is incrementally much more expensive uh, than standard payment methods. You have seen compression in that merchant discount rate as more companies have entered the space specifically paypal which expanded into buy now pay later i believe towards the end of 2020 if i'm remembering correctly and paypal is charging the same to process a credit or debit card transaction as it is to offer that transaction as bnpl which i want to say is like three percent plus 50 cents and so you're already seeing a compression on, on what the merchants have to, or are willing to pay based on competition on the supply side of BNPL products or, or provide.
1: There's another um, aspect of BNPL and and the value it creates or captures from the merchant. There's also a lot of value in the data.
0: Yes, definitely. Andreessen Horowitz wrote uh, a blog post arguing that. Buy now, pay later had the potential to become a new set of payment rails. Now I disagree a little bit with some of the underlying analysis, but the argument that the person who wrote it was making was BNPL has a huge advantage over traditional card networks because they have SKU level data. They have item level data. If I go to uh, the grocery store here in Utrecht and buy 20 things and swipe my card, all my bank knows is that I spent 50 Euro at the grocery store. They don't know what I bought. Whereas if I use BNPL uh, to you know, do a split pay purchase at a merchant, the BNPL company sees every item that I bought. And that is, as you point out, uh, that data is valid. The second piece that you mentioned, which is ownership or control of the customer. You're already seeing this. So the example I gave earlier in the conversation about buy, not pay later appearing when it's needed at checkout again, that was very. Uh, A very typical example of what this looked like maybe 12 or 18 months ago, but recognize the competitive threat to all these buy now, pay later startups entering the space, companies responded by attempting to figure out how can we move up funnel? How can we have a customer come to the buy now, pay app or website first and start their shopping journey there instead of just choosing whichever. Buy now, pay later company happens to be available at checkout. And you've seen this, a firm specifically has talked about pivoting or rebranding as a quote unquote super app, including shopping components. And they're launching what's known as a decoupled debit card, which would allow a user to use buy now, pay later functionality at any merchant that accepted card payments. And a firm will then debit their existing bank account on the back end. So that's a product innovation that would allow a firm more control over the consumer uh, journey or the consumer relation. Klarna is doing similar things with what's essentially a charge card or a physical card that allows Klarna users uh, to use buy now, pay later at any merchant. And they've already launched that in the UK, and I believe they're launching it in the us as well so you're seeing a number of product innovations and ux innovations from these companies where they don't want to be relegated to the checkout screen they want a user to open their phone and open their app or open their wallet and take out their card so that they control that customer experience and and as you point out the data that goes along with that the the piece that i see developing from the merchant side is eventually, or in a sense there's already history here of pushing back against the high cost to process payments. And the EU has been better about regulating that to hold down some of those costs. The US of course is quite a different beast. And one specific example, one historic example comes to mind which is Walmart in the US has over the years done a number of initiatives to attempt to bring its its card processing in-house to reduce the fees it's paying to accept payments. And notably, more recently, Amazon got in a very public fight with Visa in the UK about the cost to accept credit cards, as well as Australia. And, and that matter was settled recently. But I think you're going to see these kinds of flare-ups where if I'm If you have the scale that an Amazon has, you can push back and try to get negotiate on those fees, but for your sort of mom and pop or everyday merchants, that don't have that kind of negotiating power. They have limited flexibility to engage with a behemoth like Visa MasterCard and negotiate those rates down. I think the merchants are going to retain the data on what a customer has purchased at their store, regardless of how it's paid for. But for them, payment processing costs can become substantial, particularly in low margin businesses. Here in the Netherlands, virtually 100% of stores accept cards, but that's because the fee to accept those cards is extremely low. Whereas if I think of my time living in New York, you know, it was not uncommon to have stores or merchants that were cash only because the fee to accept cards was high or that had a minimum of say $20 per transaction because the processing cost was high. And so I think the data piece is is one element, but I think as far as merchants are concerned, they like the flexibility to offer a credit product to their consumer, but there is gonna be sensitivity around how much are they paying to process these payments?
1: Could there be a a better BNPL in the future? And I've noticed one specific startup which says they do BNPL through open banking, and therefore they have a more accurate assessment of the, the ability to pay back. I'm thinking in particular of FinLoop, but there's probably more. So wh- what do you think about that? Is there any possibility of doing
0: a better BNPL? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're describing makes a ton of sense, right? One of the major complaints, and you've seen this, especially in Australia, which was ahead of the curve in adoption and where a lot of these BNPL companies are based, a lot of the regulatory complaints were around affordability, which is basically saying, Hey, you're granting consumers credit that they're having a hard time paying back. And that showed up in a couple of different ways. Some of the BNPL companies had rather high delinquency or loss rates or derived a rather high proportion of their revenue from late fees. And I won't pretend I'm super knowledgeable specifically about the Australian regulator, but something that regulators do tend to pay attention to is if you're designing a product where the company offering it benefits when the consumer fails. So if I'm offering BNPL and I'm saying it's free, but then like 20%, 30% of my customers end up incurring late fees, regulators tend not to like products that are structured that way. So what you're suggesting, or the example you give of using open banking to understand, hey, what does this customer's financial picture look like? Can he or she afford the payments that they're taking on is helps to solve that problem. I think the challenge in certain markets is that can actually be rather expensive. Using tool like Plaid to scrape somebody's bank account transaction data uh, and then understand what is money coming in? What is money going out? What does affordability look like? It's not free to do that. On the other hand, in uh, the EU, where you have a more prescriptive regulatory environment around open banking, It can be less expensive, or I think even some providers offer a base level of open banking connectivity uh, for for free. Yeah, mm -hmm, exactly. So yeah, to answer your question, is there a way to do this that uses more data or different data to mitigate credit risk or make sure better measure or better assess affordability? Yeah, absolutely. I think the challenge and uptake there is. Companies in this space don't want to say no to people. If you're at checkout and you're saying, I want to use Klarna, Affirm, Zip, whatever, declining that is, is never encourages a good sentiment from the consumer on the flip side, they also need to be controlling their losses. And there, there have been stories and analysis of rather high loss rates in some of these BNPL companies. And I think there are tools, whether it's open banking or in the U.S., moving towards using either the the traditional credit bureaus or specialty bureaus set up by those companies to track how many BNPL plans does a consumer have? Are they making payments on time?
1: I think that's a very good overview of BNPL. We've seen where it comes from, where we're at, and some potential positive outcomes. Now, if we have a bit more time, I'd like to go back to the potential hype, A firm went uh, from IPO price to 80 to hundred percent upside at 175, and now is at 35. It's not just a narrative thing, but can you tell us a bit about the, the narrative cycle?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of, of, you know, different things happening there. Obviously there's some elements of a macro trend unfolding across the entire tech sector, which would also impact a firm, but like looking at. Uh, the buy now pay later category uh, more specifically and Affirm. this reminds me so much of uh fintech lending in like 2015 2016 you had so much excitement about companies making loans on the internet or peer-to-peer funding companies like on deck and lending club that were going public with market caps of $10 billion. And once those companies began trading on the public markets, the those multiples, so like uh, price earnings multiple or price revenue multiple contracted from tech multiples to financial services multiples, which tend to be much lower. And I think with the scrutiny of public markets, people look at some of these companies and realize this isn't really a technology business. Like you have, you certainly have technology components in how you operate the company, whether it's how loans are underwritten or how loans are dispersed or how customers are acquired through merchant integration. But fundamentally a firm is a lending business. Uh, Lending businesses are capital intent and don't tend to have extremely high valuation multiples. So I think both in the Affirm case specifically and in the broader BMPL sector, reliving something that happened not that long ago, six or seven years ago, where there was a ton of excitement. This is revolutionary. Tech is changing everything. This is really different. And then once you get a look at the balance sheet and the P and L and understand, okay, how does this business really work? How does it really make money? Maybe a little bit of the shine comes off and it's okay, like This is a consumer lending business. Yeah. There's some novel elements to it as far as distribution at point of sale through merchants, certainly sophisticated credit underwriting and fraud detection and things like that. But like fundamentally, this is a consumer lending business. And I think the valuation once it hit public markets begins to better reflect that the other half of this story, how is this company valued or how are all of these companies valued so highly? In private markets, Klarna, I believe is seeking a 50 to $60 billion valuation on an additional round of fundraising, despite the troubles that a firm has had. And some of the Australian uh, buy now, pay later companies have had, Klarna is seeking yet a higher valuation. And there are some dynamics in the late stage private fundraising market that, that encourage pushing these valuations higher, which, which in some cases turn out not to be sustainable once they start trading in public markets. Yes.
1: And uh, how do investors manage the hype or identify the hype?
0: The best, I guess, advice I could give about that is to try to understand what the fundamental business model actually is. And to draw on an example from from earlier and from a different vertical, Uber is also the same story where was, okay. This is like a totally new thing. It's the sharing economy. It's a technology company, and as no Uber is is a transportation company. It provides a marketplace that matches riders with drivers and takes a percent of that and etc. But like fundamentally, Uber in the private markets or early stage public markets was valued using a different set of rules than the, the, the type of revenue it actually generates. I think to sometimes it's hard to take off those rose colored glasses and say, what is this company actually doing? How does it actually generate revenue? And how should I value the company based on that? And, and I think a lot of the companies in the fintech space have existing analogies that you can compare them to so like looking at neo banks that derive a lot of their revenue from interchange income looking at bnpl that are functionally lending companies it's not like there are no uh public market comps where you can say okay a firm is private and it's ipoing for however many billions of dollars But it looks like this publicly traded company but the multiple is like 10x or 20x instead of 1x i think the single best thing investors can do is ask questions and understand what they're buying or what they're investing in and not just go off of CNBC or TechCrunch or whatever their friend told them.
1: Yeah. This is a great lesson. And uh, my podcast and YouTube channel is very much about the future of investing without the hype. So I think that's uh, an important lesson to put up there to conclude and just uh, have a couple of uh, personal questions. So the first one is. What would you do if you were to choose a different career path?
0: Yeah, I was dangerously close to going to law school. I'm... I'm pretty glad I didn't do that. No, no offense to any, any lawyers who might be listening. And if you're a, a frequent reader of my newsletter, you can probably pick up on this theme and in the number of regulatory and like policy issues that I like to look at and write about. I don't know, maybe a law degree is still somewhere in my future.
1: I always think about my kids, they're tiny, but if they could be lawyers, it seems like the one thing that weathers all the storms. Now it's a great time to be a banker, but you don't know next year a lawyer it's a good insurance policy on your future but the next question is how do you invest
0: Yeah, my, my personal investing is pretty boring. It is uh, a lot of Vanguard index fund, uh, a little bit of real estate. I've started dabbling in some very small angel investments. So early stage startups, which I like to consider like gambling or a lottery ticket in the sense that the time horizon is long and the likelihood of success is quite low. And I have been watching the crypto space mostly because I want to learn more about it and understand the mechanics of like how people are interacting and investing in it and, and why. And I think specifically some of the narratives around Bitcoin, which have evolved over time are, are really interesting to compare to how. Uh, it, it's functioning as an asset class, in the real world, definitely currency in any sort of traditional sense of, of how somebody uses a currency. So folks started talking about Bitcoin as quote unquote digital gold, a, a store of value asset, a safe haven, but looking at how it's performed, for example, during this unfolding Ukraine crisis tends to debunk that notion. I guess maybe I have academic interest in how the crypto space is serving as a novel asset class and how that's evolving. But to be honest, I I haven't had the bravery to to put any of my own money into that space. We've
1: got an episode for you. I spoke to Lex Sokolin, who I think you know well. And uh, well, we didn't discuss that in particular, but we discussed a lot about crypto yield. So watch out for this episode. And Jason, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for this great overview on BNPL. And we will put the links to your newsletter and other references below, but can you tell us a little bit uh, where we can find you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, find me on Twitter. The uh, handle is J A, which I should have picked something that is easier to explain. Or you can find my newsletter at fintechbusinessweekly.com.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Jason.
0: Thanks so much for having me.